we'll turn our thoughts, well, in the context, of course, of the whole passage, we'll turn our thoughts to verse 32, where the Lord tells us that whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Confessing Christ and uh, denying him. Now, these words, of course, uh, clearly teach us that it is our duty to confess the Lord Jesus Christ. They also teach us that it is vital to do so. Because if we do so, Christ, on his part, will confess us. And if we fail to confess the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ, on his part, will deny us. And the words also clearly teach us that whether we do confess him or not depends on who we fear the most in life, whether we fear God or man the most. And if we have really learned to fear God, if we understand what that means, not just intellectually, but spiritually, if we have learned to fear God, then we will confess the Lord Jesus Christ. If, on the other hand, we still fear man, we will fail to confess the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, of course, means that we deny him. When we fail to confess him, when a confession is required, that is obviously tantamount to a denial. So this verse and the teachings that it contains are obviously very, very solemn. And uh, we need to take them to heart and we pray that the Lord would impress them firmly upon our hearts today. Especially as we witness uh, several people publicly confessing Christ in the congregation. Uh, just before I leave that question of the fear of man and the fear of God, it's easy sometimes to be unsure what is meant really by fearing God and fearing man. But in reality, it's straightforward enough. I suppose if you change the word fear to a, an acceptable alternative, which is something like respect or honor, then it becomes a little more plain. Do you respect and honor man, or do you respect and honor God? Simple questions will highlight that for you. For example, whose opinion matters most to you? Is it people's opinion of you, or God's opinion of you? Connected with that, similar, whose approval matters most to you? Is it God's approval, or the approval of men, or the approval of your community, whose acceptance or rejection matters most to you, the acceptance and rejection of God or men, your community or your family, indeed, as this may explain, whose judgment matters most, the judgment of men in their councils and organizations or the judgment of God, which is, of course, finally delivered at the judgment seat of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I hope we all ask these questions, I hope we all consider them, and I hope we can all answer them in the right way. But of course it's easy to 
answer these questions in theory. It's easy to answer them in an armchair, uh, but sometimes the Lord brings situations into our lives that tests these things. Very well, in other words, you say that you fear, respect, and honor me over and above uh, men, community, or family, or whatever. Well, let that be put to the test. And that's normally put to the test by situations that require our confession. Now, that, of course, is something that's required of all who stand on the Lord's side, they are required just to stand on the Lord's side and they are required to confess his name in the presence of the congregation and in the presence even of a watching world at certain times if need be. Now I want to look with you at this idea of confession here as the Lord highlights it in the passage, what it means and what its opposite is. What does it mean to confess Christ, to confess him before men, what does it mean to deny him? So we'll begin with that. We'll begin with the meaning of confession. Then, second, we'll turn to the duty of confessing. Uh, Why do we need to do it? What is it really that we need to do? And last of all, the importance of confessing Christ. And that's really what powerfully comes through in the verse. To confess him means that he confesses us. To fail to confess him means that he will deny us. Now let's begin with the word uh, confession. Now we associate confession with um, perhaps something in particular. We associate confession with acknowledgement of our sins. We acknowledge it with bringing out into the open something that is hidden, and normally that is sin. But the Greek word behind this, now there's no real reason usually for pronouncing a Greek word, unless there is a good reason for it, in this case there is, because the Greek word behind this is the word homologeo, which means to say the same thing. Some of you, if you've been used to dealing with uh, church courts or other courts will be familiar with the English word homologate, which comes from this, which means again to say the same thing. Uh, for example, let's say the, uh, some situation arose in the congregation that required the deacons to, to take a quick decision on a matter. No time to convene a court, but something needs to be done. They'll do it and say, well, this can be homologated at the next proper meeting. So when the deacon's court formally convenes, they will hopefully homologate it. In other words, they'll recognize it was the right thing to do at the right time, and they will approve it. They will homologate, say the same thing. They will stand with the people who took the decision and formally record it. Now, that's what the word means. It means to say the same as someone else, and therefore to stand with them, to share the same platform of truth. So to homologate Christ is to agree with him fundamentally. It is to affirm the truth that he spoke, to receive it as the truth, to be ready to declare it as the truth. As he stood before men and spoke it, 
as he stood before tribunals like the Sanhedrin or like Pontius Pilate and spoke it, so you are prepared to stand with him and to homologate that. I affirm what he said. I accept what he said. I embrace what he said. I follow what I said. In other words, you are not just homologating the truth of it. You are stating your own personal commitment to it. Now I'll say a little more about that later on when we turn to the content of the vows that these people are taking today. But that's what you're doing when you're confessing Christ. You affirm the truth regarding who he is and what he has done. That he is indeed the Son of God, that he has come into this world, died and risen again in order to deal with sin, to save sinners. And you are affirming your personal commitment to that by receiving him as your Lord and as your Saviour from sin and the one who delivers you into heaven. So that really is what it means to confess the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, there's a lot more that could be said about it, but let's just leave it there for the moment. And that takes us, secondly, to the duty of confessing. How and when do we do it? Now, the word confessing is normally used in situations where you have to formally uh, stand beside the Lord Jesus Christ. Formal settings or settings that are posing some kind of danger and which require maybe something hidden to come out. The word confession carries that idea. That's why you confess your sins. It's not just that you declare them to God, but you have to sometimes go down and find it and bring it out and lay it open before the Lord. Sometimes you may have to do it publicly. If you have sinned publicly, you may be required to confess publicly. Now, this word, uh, homologeo, is sometimes translated profess and sometimes confess. Now, I'm sure you use both words yourselves. You, you probably say, well, I've professed the Lord Jesus Christ or I've confessed the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps you've wondered, is there any difference? Are, are both these essentially the same things? And in a way, you'd have to say, well, yes, they are in a way the same. We profess the Lord Jesus, we profess his lordship, we profess to love him, and we confess the Lord. We confess his lordship, and we confess to love him. But there is a distinction. If you were to look up in, your, in a dictionary, especially a dictionary that goes well behind words, if you are going to look up confess and profess, you'll see that there is a subtle difference. To profess means simply to to say something, to state it freely, voluntarily. But to confess it has the idea of it somehow being brought out of you or required by a particular authority or a particular situation. So in other words, we can profess Christ day to day, and I'm sure and I hope you do. I don't say that just to the seven who will be confessing today, but to all of us who are Christians, who have come to know the Lord, who have tasted and seen that God is good and gracious, we profess him day to day in our lives. We do that freely, 
We do it voluntarily. We're not required by people to do so. Whether they ask for it or or not, we will commend the Lord Jesus Christ to them. And that idea of professing carries no idea of opposition to you. There's nothing formal in it, nothing like that. You just take delight to speak about his name, recording his wonderful works and recounting them and testifying on the Lord Jesus' side. So we profess freely and voluntarily. But like I said, confessing is different. It relates to a formal situation and very often a formal situation that carries the idea of opposition and danger. Usually a court, perhaps, or a tribunal that is constituted to examine you. And if you stand on the side of the Lord Jesus Christ, there may be some price to pay for doing that. And in the English translations of our Bible, that distinction between confession and profession is is usually maintained. For example, Paul said to Titus that there are people who profess Christ but actually deny him in their works. So that means that they, they will share uh, the name of Christ with you, but really, if you look at their conduct, he says, they're denying him. And I suppose that means that although they profess him like that, if they were pushed to confess him, they might find that difficult. So profession would be easy, but confession would be difficult. Uh, John tells us in uh, his gospel when the blind man was um, healed. That's the man who had been blind from birth. Um, He he of course ran into difficulty with the Pharisees and uh, the Pharisees asked for his uh, parents to testify about him. And uh, the parents of course refused to say anything because they were afraid of the Pharisees. They were afraid of being dragged to the court of the local church, the local synagogue. So the parents said, ask him yourself. He's old enough. He'll speak for himself. He'll tell you whether he was blind from birth or not. John tells us that his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed that if anyone confessed Christ he would be put out of the synagogue. Now, that, notice that's a formal context. If anyone appeared before the synagogue court and said, the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Lord Jesus is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ is my Lord, my Messiah and my Saviour, he would be put out of the synagogue. That's not just a simple profession, but a formal confession. You have the same thing, actually, just a little bit later on in John's Gospel. In John 12, 42, we're told that among the rulers, many believed in him. Now, John always speaks in his Gospel. I haven't got time to go into that just now, but he always speaks in the Gospel of people who have a kind of belief in Jesus. They're impressed with his words, impressed with his dignity, with his conduct, his grandeur, with his majesty, with his compassion, all these things. But it doesn't come to full saving faith. Here is an example. Among the rulers many believed, but because of the Pharisees they would not confess him, in case they would be put out of the synagogue. 
for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Now notice how that's going behind their failure to confess and into their motive. You know, if you were to ask, well, why is it that these people who somehow believe, why is it that they're actually afraid to confess? Well, it's because they'll be put out of the church. And why are they afraid of that? Because they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. So it was more important for them to be in with these people, to be in with the Pharisees and in with the leaders of the synagogue and in with their communities rather than to be out with Christ and his people. That takes us right back to where we started. Who is it that we really respect the most? Whose voice really matters most? Whose opinion matters most? Whose judgment matters most? They love the praise of men more than the praise of God. It is a very, very sad thing if we end our lives um, in bondage to the fear of men. Uh, Because at the end of the day, the men and women to whom you look can do absolutely nothing for you. Absolutely nothing for you. When you've drawn your last breath, it's all over, it's finished. And when you appear before the judgment seat of Christ, what they thought about you, how much does it matter? Not a jot, not a whit. It doesn't matter at all. And the saddest thing in the world is for people to be people pleasers, men pleasers, when at the end of the day, what does it matter? What men think. So there they wouldn't confess because they loved the praise of men rather than the praise of God. Now there are two kinds of formal setting where a confession may be required. One is before a court of the church and the other is before a court of the state. The Lord, of course, has appointed both ministries, the civil magistrate and the spiritual magistrate, uh, to exercise his rule upon the earth. And sometimes both courts may require you to confess. Now, very often when a state does so, it's hostile. Um, It shouldn't always be like that. Our own state is actually still formally, technically, grounded in Christian principles. You'll, you'll notice that the king had to take certain oaths uh, before he became a king. Now, what he thought of these oaths, uh, what he uh, actually uh, meant when he said it, what his motive was, I've no idea. I can suspect, and so can probably you, but the state may normally require a confession of the Lord Jesus Christ of you. Sometimes it does that in a court of law simply by asking you to vow upon the Bible or things of that kind. But it it may ask for different degrees or different kinds of confession. But so, of course, can a court of the church. Now, the sad thing is that a state court may be favourable. It's often unfavourable. For example, if you were a, a, a Christian in the early centuries, to appear before a Roman tribunal was very difficult. You knew that to confess the Lord Jesus Christ meant difficulty at best. It it may have meant, if you were living in Rome, it may have meant appearing in the Colosseum, uh, being torn apart by lions, or um, who knows what it was. Uh, But very often appearing before a state court uh, required a confession which would possibly end in death. 
Church courts we would normally think would be friendly, but down through the years it's not always been like that. It should be a friendly situation. I hope when these seven brothers and sisters come up to confess the Lord Jesus Christ, I hope they are aware that it is a favourable court. The session has appointed these vows to be taken. They are taken in the presence of God. They're taken in the presence of the congregation. And they will be surrounded today by men and women who love them and who delight to hear their confession and who will be praying for them as they make the confession that the Lord whom they confess will be truly their Lord and he will guide and keep and guard them through all the days of their pilgrimage. Um, There may be a natural fear nonetheless in coming before uh, a court like that. I mean... When we do so, when we appear before a session or when we take vows, we're very conscious of the importance of it. That in itself can bring a fear. The, the low views that we have of ourselves and our own worthiness to profess the Lord Jesus Christ, that brings its own fear. And that is a healthy thing. It's never healthy if it keeps you back from doing what you should do. But to have a low view of your own worthiness is absolutely a good thing, but it brings a sense of fear. So does the responsibility involved. We know that to stand on the Lord's side and to declare publicly that we stand with the Lord carries a responsibility because people judge the Lord, perhaps, on the basis of your life and your conduct. Um, That is something that strikes fear into all our hearts, certainly if we are true Christians. The Apostle Paul famously, when he was writing to the Corinthians, told them that they were living epistles. You, he says, are living letters, known and read by all men. Um, That's a very powerful statement. Uh, I suppose we, we could put it really this way, that that supposing people had no Bible but only had a knowledge that there was a God who saved through the Lord Jesus Christ and they knew you were a Christian, well, you're their Bible. Effectively, that's what it's saying. You become an epistle. You're a living epistle. You're walking, you're thinking, you're speaking. And people will be judging that speech and that conduct. And they will be judging the Lord Jesus Christ and his salvation on the basis of how you appear. Now you may say, and I may say too, well, that's very demanding, and in some senses it's unfair, and in in some ways both these things are true. It is demanding, and in some ways it's unfair, because as I mentioned last Sabbath day morning, the integrity of the gospel and the integrity of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Saviour stands well apart from your integrity and mine. The gospel doesn't fall to pieces. And the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't fall to pieces because you fall to pieces or because I fall to pieces. God will be God and his truth will be the truth and his salvation will be salvation independently of us. But nonetheless, it is a fact that people will make a relationship between how you live your life and the Lord Jesus Christ, the truth and the reality of the gospel. And that sense of responsibility too can bring a real sense of fear when you appear before a congregation 
or make your testimony before a court of Christ's church. But none of that changes that this is still a favourable court and one that's full of sympathy and compassion. Unlike other courts that you may be called upon uh, to appear before. And I'm sure you know that down through history uh, it wasn't always so easy to make a profession. You think of people like Luther or uh, people like Thomas Cranmer in the English Reformation or her own covenanting forefathers, how difficult it was for them sometimes to stand before church courts, never mind civil courts, knowing that the stake awaited them or the scaffold. They knew that they were to die a martyr's death. Now you'll notice here, and I drew attention to it before the reading really, the context here is full of this kind of danger from verse 16 onwards. Uh, I'm sure the twelve were, well, they were filled with a sense of um, a certain kind of fear, all right, as they were being commissioned to go out there. But they would have a certain uh, level of joy and gladness, too, that they were going out to speak on Christ's behalf and uh, to share the gospel. But in verse 16, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, he says. Wolves. So you've got to be as wise as a serpent, but at the same time as harmless as a dove. But he says, beware of men, verse 17. They're going to deliver you up to their councils and their synagogues, and they'll scourge you. Now, these scourgings were whippings that were very severe. Um, Forty stripes were to be administered on the back. You'll be brought before governors and kings before, for my sake, in verse 18. But in verse 19 he says, don't worry about what you should speak or what you would say, because he says it will be given you in that hour what you should speak. Um, Some people have used this text historically as a reason not to prepare sermons, which is quite bizarre. Oh, if I stand up it will be given me what to say. You've always got to pay attention to context when it comes to texts. I remember a man who's now <coughs> gone to glory who always used to say that a text without a context will be used as a pretext, which is so true. Here the reference is not to preparing sermons, which should be done thoroughly by a workman who has no need to be ashamed. Rather, it's a reference to emergency situations or unexpected situations where you're called upon to do something for the Lord, to say something for Christ. And he says, don't worry about it. Now, we're always worried about these things. Uh, When we're perhaps professing Christ for the first time, we're very worried about what situations we might be in. We're worried about things, and I can identify it with it, even being called to pray or called to witness. Sometimes in the past, you used to maybe have to speak to a question on things like that, and you think, well, how can I do that? And how can I do that? Well, that'll be given you. These things will be given you. Uh, situations where you can't really prepare, well, trust. (laughs) You need to trust God for preparation too. But the point here is just simply trust. In every situation, in every situation, it will be given you what to say. It's not you who speaks, but the spirit of your Father who speaks in you. And that spirit can speak through you in broken language. It can sometimes speak through you in sighs, and in tears. But that speech is as powerful as any other form of speech 
if it is the Spirit of the Father who is speaking in these sighs and in those tears. Does St. Paul remind us that in our prayers, when we know not what to ask for, and is that, is that not public as well as private? Is that not public as well as private? When we know not what to ask for, that the Holy Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. I, I remember a man who seemed to spend more time groaning than articulating something in his prayer. That didn't take away from the spirituality of his prayer. Not one little bit. It will be given you, he says. And in this climate of fear, you'll notice how dangerous life becomes in verse 21 because a brother will deliver a brother to death. Now this is serious persecution. It's entering into families. A father will deliver up his child to death. Children rising up against parents and cause them to be put to death. How dangerous it was to be a Christian in that environment. I'm sure the twelve were listening to this and wondering, is this really going to happen? Is this situation really going to break out? Yes, he says, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And in verse 23, when when they persecute you in this city, he says, don't hesitate to go to another one. But you will not have fled through all the cities before the Son of Man comes. Now, the coming there, sometimes the Lord's coming refers to very different events. Here his coming refers very specifically to his return to judge Jerusalem and to judge the people of Israel, which took place in 70 AD. So before 40 years are over, he says, I will have returned. Verse 24, a disciple is no better than his teacher. And at the end of verse 25, if if they deal with me as though I was the devil, he says, they will deal with you as though you are the devil. But he says, don't be afraid of them. The truth will come out regarding them and regarding you. Verse 27, don't be scared to speak. What I'm telling you secretly in the dark, on you go, speak it out in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, he says, you go and preach it on the housetops. And don't be afraid of people, because all they can do is kill you. Rather, he says, you make sure that you fear God, who can destroy the soul as well as the body in hell. Therefore, confess me and I'll confess you. Deny me and I will deny you. Don't fear man. Now, whether you're confessing today for the first time or for the second time or the third time, what you're confessing is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me just go into that a little bit and ask, what is it that you're confessing? Well, I mentioned earlier, you're certainly confessing uh, that Jesus is Lord. Your fourth vow is this, your affirmation. Do you believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is Lord of all, supreme in church and state, and due the obedience of all mankind? Yes, you affirm that. And of course, that as a personal application. Is he your Lord? Have you, by repentance and faith, received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour? 
And do you promise that by the help of the Holy Spirit you will endeavour to forsake sin and live a life consistent with the word of God? You'll notice that you're confessing your own acceptance of the lordship of Christ. That's what you're doing. You're not just confessing the lordship as an abstract truth, but your acceptance of that lordship. You're confessing sin to him as your priest. You're resolving to forsake it because you are to obey the king. And you're resolving to live a life of obedience to him as he reveals that life code in the Bible as your prophet teacher and as he disciplines you in it as your king. And you do so as part of his church. Do you promise to submit to the biblical authority of the elders as they encourage you to grow in your love for God and obedience to him and so on? The Lord, of course, reminds us that when we become Christians, we take our place in the public fellowship of congregations. That's how the Lord wants Christians to live, as part of congregations. Therefore, he says, Hebrews thirteen seventeen, Obey those who rule over you, and be submissive to them, for they watch out for your souls, as those who must give account. So let them do that with joy, and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So these are things that you confess. Now, friends, you know, we all know that there will always be a, a pressure on us not to confess Christ. That pressure comes from the devil. Uh, even when there's nobody around, it comes from the devil. Although he uses the fear of man. There's nobody around, but he'll come and say, well, have, have you thought about this, you know? Have you, have you really thought about this? Uh, when you take this step, have you really thought about the effect here or uh, here in your place of work or in your family? How's your son or daughter going to respond to this? How's your father or mother going to respond? How, how are your brothers or sisters going to respond? And it's amazing that the Lord takes us to that in verse 34 of the chapter. Look at it. Don't think, he says, that I came to bring peace on earth. Again, a text without a context is a pretext. There is a sense in which the Lord came to bring peace on earth. He will bring peace on earth. When he renovates this world, righteousness alone will dwell in it. No sin, no sorrow, no sign. It's a gospel of peace. Is he not called the Prince of Peace himself? He is, yes. But as we well know and we should know in this country, in a sinful world... Peace comes through conflict, and it comes with a sword. And he says, I came to bring that sword. And it will come right into families, because in verse 35, I will set a man against his father. Now here you have either a father believing and a son not, or a father not believing but a son believing. I've come, he says, to set a daughter against her mother. Now these are close relationships sometimes, and here you have the gospel severing them. It's not a remarkable thing. We pray in these situations that the severance will be with a view to a healing and a better healing, a more glorious coming together than there ever was. But nonetheless, it's real. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And Jesus says, quoting a prophet, that 
a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, well, is it necessary really to to confess if that's the cost? Well, he deals with that in the next verses. In verse 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. These things are really searching for all of us. For me as a preacher today as well as for you a hearer. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross outside the camp. You'd be popular inside it, but outside the camp, that's where the cross belongs. The cross belongs in the place of rejection. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Verse 39, he who finds his life, in other words, you find your fulfillment and your pleasure in this life, well, he says you're going to lose it. But he who loses his life, that's the man-pleasing, man-centered life of this world, he says, if you lose that life for my sake, then you will find it. That takes us lastly to the importance of confessing Christ. And Well, friends, it's put very simply and starkly. If we confess Christ on earth, he confesses us in heaven. If we deny Christ on this earth, he denies us in heaven. Like I say, simple, stark, profound searching. Let's begin with confessing Christ on earth and him confessing us in heaven. I'm quite sure that the primary reference there, when it speaks of Christ confessing us um, in heaven, I'm sure the primary reference there is to the last day, to to the day of judgment, where we stand before the ultimate tribunal and where we confess that Jesus is Lord. We confess that Jesus Christ is God, Lord, Jehovah, to the glory of God the Father. Christ will homologate that. It's a wonderful thought, you see, that, that we confess it uh, when we arrive at the judgment seat. This is my Lord, my Savior. And the Lord Jesus Christ comes forward and homologates that. I am his or her Lord. I am his or her saviour. Now we need to be careful. We need to qualify this because the Lord Jesus does not homologate every profession. Even in heaven, when people appear before the judgment seat of Christ, some of them will say, Lord, Lord. But Christ tells us that not everyone who says, and I'm reading here from Matthew, the same gospel, chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. That's a a confession. There's something wrong with a confession. Because not all who say it shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me, in that day. Now here we're referring to the great day when the destinies of all men and women are finally and irrevocably decided. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Have we not prophesied in your name? We've cast out demons in your name. And we have done many wonders in your name. 
and far from homologating that confession, the Lord says, I never knew you. Depart from me, he says, you who practice lawlessness. In other words, their confession was objective and abstract, not subjective and personal. They never made his lordship internal. They never loved his commandments. They never really strove to walk in them. They were keen on things that dazzled people and impressed people, but they weren't keen on the ordinary walk of humble obedience with the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the Lord doesn't homologate the confession. It's a very impressive confession, but the Lord does not homologate it. He doesn't stand with them. But he does stand with those who stood with him. And especially when it was difficult to stand with them. You'll notice that these people who said, well, we did this for you and we did that for you, these are fair-weather people. But those who really stood with them are, well, there's a very touching expression that the Lord Jesus uses on the night that he's betrayed. And... uh, Interesting, I'm going to come to this in a second because it sounds rather contradictory, but he's saying it to um, 11 people who are just about to flee and to one degree or another to deny him. Um, That's the paradox of this, which I'll come to. But he says to them that night, he says, you are those who have stood with me in my trials and I appoint you a kingdom as my father has appointed me. Now, that's, these are wonderful words, and they're words of condescension and kindness on the part of someone who knows that there's going to be at least a temporary denial just down the road. On the very last night, he says, you are those who have stood with me in my trials. The Lord respects that. The Lord notices it. The Lord honors it. And he will stand with those who stood with him. He'll homologate our confession. But friends, I think it's wrong to confine this um, confession on Christ's part to heaven. Uh, Sorry, to confine it to the last day or the day of judgment. I think it's wrong to confine it like that. When the Lord says that those who confess me on earth before men, I'll confess before my Father in heaven, I don't think he means to confine that heavenly confession on his own part to the day of judgment. I think he's, he's referring to an ongoing confession that he is making at his Father's right hand in connection with those who are in an ongoing way confessing himself in this world. Let me take an example. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was required by the Sanhedrin to stand before them to see whether he would confess or deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you'll remember famously that he confessed the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll remember that that confession ended with the Sanhedrin supervising the stoning of Stephen. And as Stephen was being stoned and before he died, you'll remember that he saw heaven opened and he saw Christ standing at the right hand of God. Now that standing posture 
conveys an awful lot about our Lord, which I'd like to go into some other time. But one thing it conveys is the fact that he is actively interceding. As a king, the Lord Jesus sits at the right hand. When we see him as a priest, he stands praying and interceding at the Father's right hand. And that intercession involves confession. It is effectively the Lord saying, See that man on whom the stones are raining at the hand of a church court. I stand with him. He is confessing me at great pain and distress to himself. Well, I stand here confessing him. And Stephen had that blessed assurance that as he was confessing the Saviour, the Saviour was confessing himself. And each time you stand, and there will be seven here who will stand shortly, you can be sure if you are in Christ and genuine in the vows that we take, and we have no reason to believe you're not genuine in the vows that you take, you can have the wholehearted assurance. Oh, what a wonderful assurance it is that at the precise moment you are confessing his lordship and your subjection to it, that the Lord Jesus Christ is doing the same on your own behalf, owning you and acknowledging you before God. Isn't that a wonderful thought? To have your confession homologated in heaven. And I don't know what difficult times may come into your portion or mine, but you'll notice that the Lord, as it were, pretty much goes out of his way to tell us that in situations of hardship and persecution, he noticed the smallest task that's done for himself. In verse 41, he who receives a prophet, that's all, in the name of a prophet, well, he says, you'll get a prophet's reward. Because it was tough to do so. It was tough to receive this prophet. It was dangerous to take this prophet into your house. But you took this prophet into this house because you loved that prophet for Christ's sake. Well, he says, you'll get a prophet's reward. You won't get an ordinary person's reward. You'll get a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And if you even give one of these little ones a cup of cold water just because he is mine, you will by no means lose your reward. That's a wonderful thing. Even the smallest acts done, especially in days of persecution and hostility, to stick your neck out on the Lord's side, God notices it. You know, people may not notice it. Your friends in the church may not notice it. Who cares? God sees it. The Lord notices it. And you will not lose on the Lord's reward. So to stand with the Lord's servant is to stand with himself. If you confess him, he will confess you. Finally, if you deny him on earth, he will deny you in heaven. Now again, we need to be careful because we're back to this again, a text without a context. This needs qualification as well. Just like the confession of lordship can be false, so a denial may not be the whole story. May not be the whole story. It is possible to deny, but to still be the Lord's. And we're very thankful for that. 
because sometimes we do fall short, and sometimes seriously so. It's possible for all of us to fail under pressure, perhaps family pressure or dangers of some kind, and history is full of examples, and scripture history has examples too. I mentioned Archbishop Thomas Cranmer earlier, who was so influential in the English Reformation and the author of the wonderful English prayer book too. When he confessed the truths of the Reformation, he was seriously pressurized, um, threatened with all kinds of things, and he eventually signed a recantation. He, he recanted uh, his confession of the truth. And then he was seized with terrible remorse and regret. He, it came home to him the severity of what he had done and when he was brought back to make a more public recantation, he actually astonished everyone by saying that he recanted his recantation. He says, I'm, I'm back on the ground I was on, and I'm back on the ground I always should have stood on. And that's the truths of the Reformation. Of course, he was taken to the stake. But some of you will know, sadly none of us read our Reformation history enough, but some of you will know that when he was put to the stake and when the faggots were lit, he thrust his right hand into the fire and he said, this unworthy right hand, this unworthy right hand, it was first to burn because of his shame at what his hand had done. That was a denial. It was a denial. But did the Lord deny him? No, he did not. Take an example, certainly that you know better, and that's Peter himself. It's quite a remarkable thing that Peter is famous for a great confession and a great denial. Don't know if you've ever thought of it like that, or, or has it ever struck you like that? He's, he's famous for a great confession and infamous for a great denial. His great confession was, of course, when at Caesarea he stood forward and said that we believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. His infamous denial, you know very well. He gave in to pressure. I heard of someone recently who, who said that um, he was afraid of a servant girl. No. Saying things like that are trite, superficial, and shallow. He's not afraid of a servant girl. He was afraid of a seething mob and a judicatory that was about to torture and crucify somebody. He was afraid of the same thing himself. Things like that are, are very, very real. And they shake us and they test us to the core. And not only did he fail to stand with the Lord, you know, we all know that on that night with oaths and curses, he denied that he ever knew him. Now that's a denial. That's a denial. To, to say with oaths and curses of affirmation, I do not know this man. The man that knew you, Peter, and loved you and cared for you, in spite of all that still does. After all, what, what was carrying Peter through all this? The intercession of that man. The, the Lord Jesus who stood at the Father's right hand, praying for Stephen was the same Lord who interceded that night for Peter in his denial. That's an astonishing thing. But of course he was the same Lord Jesus 
who worked a spirit of sorrow in him and brought him to a spirit of repentance and therefore administered to him forgiveness. Forgiveness. In other words, to deny the Lord Jesus here is not a reference to a single act. It's a reference to a state of denial. Whoever confesses me in life and conduct and whoever denies me in life and conduct. And is that you? It's a good opportunity when someone stands to confess the Lord to to ask yourself, am I in an ongoing state today of failing to confess my Lord and in fact denying the Lord? Is that me? Ask yourself. Just ask yourself and let me ask myself too. And today, in other words, is Christ homologating your confession or your denial? Have you ever thought of that? That right now as we speak that the Lord Jesus Christ may be homologating your denial or homologating your confession. That's a thought. Perhaps you are in a state of denial right now, but the Lord is still saying, well, let us wait. Let us wait. Don't cut it down this year. I'm going to bring this person to a state of confession. And even in the midst of that denial, let us wait. On the last day, will he homologate your denial or your confession? Let's uh, sing in conclusion uh, to the praise of God in Psalm 16. And at verse 5. Psalm 16 at verse 5. God is of my inheritance and cup the portion. The lot that fallen is to me, thou dost maintain alone. And how good it is to know that our whole providence here on earth and our heavenly portion is kept and maintained by God. And unto me the lines in pleasant places fell. The inheritance I got in beauty doth excel. And the psalm ends in verse 11 by the assurance that God shows the path of life to his people and lays up a full store of joy in the presence of his own countenance. At thy right hand, he says, are pleasures evermore. So five to seven, and then the last stanza. Let's stand to sing. (coughs) 